Hello, dreamers, and welcome back to the show. I have a very special episode this week with a very special guest. He's a filmmaker, and his debut movie was released last Friday, October 21st, at select theaters across the country for a limited time. But the movie will be streaming pretty much everywhere that you can rent it or buy it on Friday, October 28th. The movie is American Murderer, and it's based on the life of fugitive armored car robber and murderer, Jason Derrick Brown. California Dreaming covered the case back in June of 2018 in a bonus episode, but I will give you a brief recap of the case after the interview. The movie stars Tom Pelfrey, Ryan Phillippe, Chantel Van Santen, Edina Menzel, Jackie Weaver, Moises Arias, among others. So without further ado, here is my interview with the director of American Murderer, Matthew Gentile. I would like to welcome a special guest to the show today. He's a filmmaker, writer, and director, and he's here to talk about his latest film, American Murder. I believe it's his debut film, and it's going to be released this month, later on this month. His name is Matthew Gentile. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today to tell us about this movie, and I'm looking forward to talking about the incredible true story behind it. Thank you so much, Roseanne, for having me. So why don't you tell us about yourself? I already clicked around on your website, <laughs> and I looked at your videos, and everything was really amazing. So don't believe, every, <laughs> don't believe everything you read. Um, so yeah, I'm a filmmaker originally from Brooklyn, New York. I uh, moved to Los Angeles about a decade, almost a decade ago, uh, to go to film school at the American Film Institute, AFI. Uh, where I studied directing and screenwriting, uh, mainly directing. And, you know, after graduating, I had made a few, quite a few short films, which is probably what we saw clips of on my site and such. Um, you know, I was figuring out how to navigate the world of post-film school and, you know, make my first feature, uh, which is kind of always the big question for any, you know, budding directors. What's your first movie? What's your first feature? What does it look like? What does it feel like? And I was kicking around some different ideas. Um, you know, I have an obsession with true crime, like a lot of your fans. And, you know, I, I have listened to this podcast before and I'm a fan of it. So it's great yeah. to just be on here. Um, and be talking oh, it's, to you. it's my pleasure. And I'll, I'll tie that into my origin story. Okay. Um, but so when I was, you know, when I was 14 years old, before I wanted to be a filmmaker, I wanted to be an FBI agent. And uh, I used to go on the FBI's top 10 most wanted fugitives on their site with the juvenile hope of helping them catch a fugitive. <laughs> um, and, you know, on the FBI fugitive site at the time in 2004, I was around 14 years old, um, just to give your listeners an idea of how old I am. And my, um, I saw that for the first time, the face of Jason Derrick Brown. He was a surfer dude with spiky blonde hair, blue eyes, looked a lot, had an uncanny resemblance to Sean Penn from Fast Times in Richmond High. Um, so his face immediately stuck out to me, especially because, and I think we've talked about this before, and you did on your original podcast about Jason, is, you know, he didn't fit the bill compared to the rest of the fugitives. And so, you know, on that list, the top 10 list at the time, there was Osama Bin Laden, Whitey Bulger, you know, really sophisticated, high-level criminals. And then 
this guy. So at that time, at age 14, the face of Jason made an impression on me for whatever reason. Cut to 12. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say the same reason why I ended up covering him on my show. I don't do a lot of unsolved crimes, but he fascinated me too. I spent a lot of time staring at his picture as well on that list. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it stands out, you know, and it's, it's not, an, it's not your typical mugshot, right? <laughs> so, you know, all. it was just a fascinating thing to me. And, you know, 12 or so years later, I really didn't think about it much. Um, I'm out of film school at AFI. I've graduated. I have a couple of short films going around, you know, the festival circuit and having a lot of meetings in the industry. People ask me, what is your first movie? And I was, you know, nothing was really sticking, but then Sure enough, one day I'm storyboarding, uh, you know, just, just drawing out images for something I was going to shoot. I was shooting a commercial the next day, and I was drawing out the images. And as I storyboard, I always have true crime documentaries on the background. And, of course, and as, and as I'm drawing out, it was like, a, I think I was shooting a dentistry commercial at the time. So as I'm, shoot, as I'm drawing out, like, someone's mouth, I all of a sudden on the television, an image of Jason flashes on the TV. And, you know, you got to keep in mind, this is the time when the big question I'm asking myself four times a day as I'm walking the street is, Matthew, what's your first feature? What's it going to be? What's it going to be? And sure enough, this face just, boom, popped on the TV and came. And I see it, and I'm like, huh, that's weird. Jason's still missing. Like, and so I turned the volume up, and I started to watch it. And as I watched it, I started to, you know, the, the special on him, you know, Jason's story's been covered quite extensively dateline american greed you know uh all kinds of news programs so you know this program was not the first to cover him but they had some amazing interviews with people with people who knew him some people who loved him some people who were friends with him and you know what i started to see immediately from the get-go that there was more to this guy than bet the eye there's a reason why he had something about him stood out even though it's hard to put your finger on it and, you know, as I started to think about it a lot as a story, I just became really obsessed. And I said to myself, well, why isn't this a movie? Because my rule number one for writing any screenplay is, well, is this a movie I would go to see on Friday night? <laughs> you know, and I said to myself when I saw the story of Jason unfold in this documentary, I was like, eh, this is a movie I would go see. I would pay to see that movie on Friday night. And that began a mission that took many years and uh, led to be eventually discovering your podcast because, you know, I read every single thing I could get my hands on about Jason Derrick Brown. I did a lot of research, conducting interviews with, you know, some people who knew him, who I won't name on the show, just I don't want to out, and, out anyone. But, you know, I did a deep dive research into, you know, and really got my hands on everything that was available, both in the public domain and not, and, and through testimonies and whatnot. And, and from that, I constructed a screenplay that eventually got picked up by these amazing producers, uh, Kevin Madison, Chris Bell, Jim Walsh, um, really converged upon me and gave me the incredible opportunity to make my first feature um, about this crazy, fascinating character. Right. I mean, you, I, you nailed it. I watched it last night. It was brilliant. I loved Thank it. You. I loved every minute of it. I want to talk about the filming. Thank you so I, much. I, you're welcome. Um, I read that you did this, you filmed it all at the height of the pandemic. Correct. I mean, how, tell me about that experience. I don't even know what it's like filming non-pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, to be fair, me, me neither really, other than short films. Um, you know, it, 
it's interesting because you know the script had a long evolution. I first was kicking around in 2018 or even earlier. Um, that's when I did this proof of concept short for it that kind of got it off the ground. And we began filming. Day one of filming was November 18th, 2020. So it was a long journey just to get to have cameras rolling, right? And this is this podcast. If it doesn't teach your listeners anything, it'll teach them how long it takes to make a movie. Um, but yeah, you know the um, the journey was quite long and winding to get there. We, you know, the script was picked up by these two companies, Traveling Picture Show and GG Films, and I want to say early 2019. That was when I had the script with them, and we were getting it ready. I spent a year in development with them. Where I was being paid to do rewrites and work on it and make it better and stronger, sharper, so we could get it down the road to actors who could play Jason and all the other parts. And um, we started to cast the film in March of 2020. So oh, that was when we wow. made our first offer. So it was kind of crazy. We didn't really think, you know, it wasn't really on anyone's mind that we were going to go film uh, that year. I was, you know, but I decided when the world shut down that I was just going to act as if we were, you know, I was like, okay. And I gave myself a start. I said, October, 2020, we're filming. And so I worked with, fortunately, I had my team already. I had my cinematographer, my editor, my production designer. A lot of people were already attached to the film unofficially, but attached. And we just worked on it. You know, we would design the shots every day. We would, you know, uh, my editor and I work, would work on the sound, you know, my, my brother, the composer, he was involved. Like everyone was kind of like helping, but the producers and I were talking all the time and we were making offers to actors in June of 2020. We officially got uh, Tom Pelfrey to play Jason, um, who, you know, came together at a really, in a really weird way. My producer, Gia Walsh called me one day in April when Ozark season three had dropped like the day it dropped on, on Netflix. And she said, uh, Matthew, are you watching Ozark? And I said, no. I actually don't watch Ozark. And she was like, well, you need to, um, because this guy, Tom Pelfrey is incredible and he's perfect. for it." And I said, okay, but you know, keep in mind, I would get a call like this almost every day. Like, you know, this guy's great. This guy's great. That guy's great. So I'm like, okay, cool. I'll add him to the list of people to look at. Then my brother calls me and he says, are you watching Ozark? And then my best friend who's a talent agent calls me and he says, are you watching Ozark? And I say, okay, I need to watch Ozark. (laughs) (laughs) I watch it and immediately within five seconds, it was very clear that Tom Pelfrey was the guy, you know, and and then after watching it, I remembered him from some other work he had done, but, you know, we went out to him and, you know, keep in mind, we're making him an offer to be in our little indie movie at a time when he is as hot as could be because he just appeared in one of the biggest shows on Netflix. So it was pretty competitive to get him, but, you know, he and I had a a few meetings we really connected and gelled he really understood the character that much was super clear and it was there was no doubt in my mind that he was right for it come june he said yes and committed to the movie and once he came we ended up getting a really superb cast around him including ryan Philippe, jackie weaver the dean of menzel moises arias paul schneider chantel van santon and once all those players came out getting off the ground was pretty fast actually the one fast part of the whole process of the movie was the shoot <laughs> everything else was painfully slow um <laughs> development and post and getting it out but um you know, the shoot was so quick. And so November, 2020, we were filming in Utah. I mean, it was, you know, 18 degrees. Um, you know, we, you know, filming in COVID, you know, they say shooting a first feature is incredibly hard shooting it period shooting a movie with like action sequences. Like this movie has is is challenging. And then shooting a movie in COVID is also very difficult. Um, so there were a lot of obstacles we had to overcome, you know, 
on week one of filming, you know, we did, I think it was all Tom and Adina's stuff. Um, you know, Dean Menzel plays his landlady love interest. She's mm-hmm. fantastic in the film and her, you know, we have one week with her. So she comes in, she shoots her scenes. The last day of filming on week one, you know, we wrap out, I take a picture with her, you know, we hug, it was a great time. You know, she leaves. The second she leaves, and keep in mind, she also just kissed uh, my lead actor on camera for the scene they were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I go back to my hotel room, and I get a call from my producers, and they say, Adina just tested positive. Oh, no. And, yeah, and this is week one of filming, right? And so I'm like, uh, okay. And then what, what's, what does that mean? Is she, you know, she's okay. They're like, she doesn't have any symptoms. We don't know what happened, but apparently her test came back today uh, positive. And she's the only one. So. If it's, we have to get a medic in here to do another test on her. If the test, if the second test is positive, we have to shut down because you were touched. Tom was kissed, right? Like, right. you know, Tom, you know, the actors don't wear masks when you film in COVID. So it's like, it's going to, we have to shut down. If, if it's a false positive, then we're continuing tomorrow. Yeah. And if we had shut down, there's a good chance the movie would have gone finished just because of the nature of how things were at that time. So it was pretty crazy. So I hang up the phone and, I sit down in my hotel room and I just stare at the wall and I don't do a thing. I don't move a muscle. I just stare. It's not something I normally do. I'm a pretty young guy moves around a lot. So I just sit yeah. there staring and then all of a sudden I get a buzz on my phone. Bzz, text from my producer, Kevin, and it was a false positive. We're back to work tomorrow. And I laughed, I cried, <laughs> and I fell asleep on the floor. <laughs> the next day we went back to work. Um, so, you know, there were scares like that. That was the only big one. Um, but, you know, people, you know, some people did end up, it was hard, you know, you, you, to be, we were, it was a very fortunately, and I had my AD, my assistant director, Evan, said to me, it was one of the safest sets he'd been on. Because um, movies were, and shows were still going. We were actually uh, right next to High School Musical, the TV show when we were filming. It was pretty funny to think of that, like, <laughs> being our American murderer. Um, yeah. <laughs> but... It was, yeah, it was just really um, crazy and, you know, intense. And, you know, there were challenges like, you know, some scenes, like we couldn't get as many extras as we'd normally want, right? So we had to work harder to make, like, you know, scenes like in the nightclub, like look more packed or, you know, scenes like the SWAT evasions, like you wanted 30 SWAT guys, you're only getting 12. But, you know, those kinds of challenges, there's a good old quote from one of my favorite filmmakers, uh, Fellini, at at the risk of sounding pretentious, but he used to say that, uh, you know, uh, obstacles create stimuli, you know? And, okay. and so I think the obstacles kind of helped us be a little more clever and more creative and more on our money, you know? And uh, it was great. I mean, you know, to, to think about, you know, I can't say how much the movie costs, but it, you know, it really looks like a much bigger film than it is. And I think that's because, you know, we were, we were forced to be very resourceful, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, shooting on a tight schedule on a tight budget. You had an outstanding cast. I mean, the people yeah. that are in there, I, mean, I was blown away when, after I got your email and I kind of looked around, I was like, wow, okay, <laughs> this, this guy is about something. Adina <laughs> oh, was fantastic. She, I will talk about her later. She was a character that I didn't even know existed in Jason's world. Oh, interesting. So I, I was I didn't go much into his background. I was more all about the crime, which is what I want to talk about next. Um For sure. because that's what this show's about. Totally. So this crime 
it was something that was really well planned out. And it happened on November 29th, 2004, which is the Monday after Thanksgiving. How far in advance did Jason start planning this that you know of? That one's that's tough to say. I, I will say what I do know. I know that I don't know exactly how long he was planning it, but the movie and its timeline mostly covers like more or less you know, there's flashbacks, but the year leading up to it, right? Like the last year for him. Mm-hmm. And it was about a year between when he would there is in a lot of the shows that have covered Jason's story. There's a lot of mystery between that area from when he was living and it was the real crime and story took place in Phoenix, Arizona. We filmed it in Utah and kind of gave it a neutralized Southwest American city setting. Um, But, you know, the, um, the reality is, yeah, he was, you know, I want to say 2003 April ish. That's when he was like kind of on top, living and you know doing his typical con, where he would go into a neighborhood, overwhelm people with toys, um, and you know what you're referring to with the Dina's character, where you come in and like charm a neighborhood with like Cadillacs and BMWs, or in some cases probably come off super ostentatious in a neighborhood, um, you know, and present himself as kind of this wealthy man. So the record of it is like April 2003, he was kind of doing that kind of con, and then the crime was committed in November of four. So in between those two areas, no one really knows where Jason was because you have to keep in mind this guy was constantly on the move, always you know never staying in one place for too long. He really was like a new equivalent of a desperado, like he was or like an old west outlaw. Like he would come into a town and like leave, and you know come into another town and leave. Always had a con, always had a thing, always was like kind of thinking about the next place he was going. Um, so you know, in between that time, it's not totally clear. That said. About a couple months before, there start to be there starts to get you start to get some records of like places he was going that indicate he was planning this. You know, one of them being, you know, the famous photograph of him taken in um, in November is November ninth, I think, two thousand four, when he took the photograph at the gun store. Um, you know, a moment we were. And that was three weeks or so before the murder. Um, so that tells you pretty clearly he was planning it, at least starting then. Um, you know, the record of him going to his friends and asking them to help him rob an armored truck happened about as early as a month or two. So, you know, I don't know exactly how long he planned it for. My guess would be probably a couple months. Um, I don't think he was thinking he was planning for a year. I think he was desperate in his mind. You know, I think his... You know, in Jason's mind, I think he was trying to find a way to get back to, you know, his own version of the high life. And I think, you know, his cons were sort of running out. And, you know, he was kind of doing the same thing again and again, but creditors were on his trail. So, you know, he's going to place to place, kind of doing the same crime. But then, you know, it's like an addiction for him is, is how I saw it in terms of how, you know, I think Tom and I tried to tell the stories that this, you know, it was somebody who in his own mind was desperate to get back to being you know, perceived as rich. The FBI nicknamed him the $10,000 millionaire because <laughs> um, he never had more than $10,000, but he presented himself like a millionaire, a rich guy. And so that's why I think he was trying to go and, you know, do that. And this, I think, crime was not, it was planned out, but I don't think it was like that long in the making. Um, but who knows? He could have thought about it. He was smart about it, too. 
he the way that he carried everything out and he had to do it by himself because uh i don't know how much he tried to enlist other friends um but they didn't bite they were like yeah right okay whatever um but he wasn't just planning a robbery this was going to be a homicide right from the beginning i believe so i think so too again without having been there to hear jason's conversations it's tough to say right because you know at the end of the day and even the movie uh indicates this you know it's all testimony right we're all all we're getting of jason is what people said about him which is not always the most reliable right Right. um you know nobody has had the chance to sit down with jason Derek brown and ask him why he did what he did so you know without that opportunity it's tough to say what exactly you know whether he did plan it with some whether someone did and there are a lot of theories out there um you know there is phone I think there's surveillance footage of him in a ho- in a motel lobby right after the murder, walking out of the lobby with somebody who was never identified. Yeah. Um, you know, in terms of my creative interpretation, I, I decided to go with because what I believe, I do believe he did it, and I believe he acted alone. Um, I don't think anyone was else was involved. But if you told me there was more to the story, you know, one day I would. I can't say I'd be shocked. <laughs> you know, I just as a as a creative person, me telling the story, I decided to go with, you know, Just what, I, what I thought to be true. Yeah. The, um, the only reason why I thought that he figured he was going to kill somebody is because if you're going to rob an armored car guard, you're, he's going to be armed and he's armed to shoot people like him. So I figured he just went in and he went straight because you in the movie showed him target practicing on a paper plate, right? Right. Which he actually did. That that there is proof of. Okay. Um so that means he was that he was aiming for the head and he was wanted to and was going to and planned for that. And so it, that kind of puts you in this place where he just didn't didn't care, didn't care about this person's life. He just was looking at the dollar signs and that tells a lot about him as a person. Now, this goes back, I wanted to talk next about his family, his family dynamic, his upbringing. Can you tell us a little bit about that? You went into the background um, of him leading up to the robbery and the murder. Um, tell us about what was going on with him and, like, his his family. They play kind of a role in this. We don't need to get too much into it. But how did he become the person that he was? Right. From his family. Well, first off, I should say that a theme of the film, you know, every movie has a theme, and the theme of this film for me is family. Um, You know, because when I started out, you know, when I first set out to write this film, you know, at first, yes, a pulpy crime film sounded interesting, but, you know, that would not have sustained me personally through this process. What ultimately made this a movie that, and a story that I had to tell was, it was as much about Jason Derrick Brown as it was the people who knew him and who loved him. Um, and the people who had these, you know, insights onto, into who he was and why he did what he did. Um, so, you know, it wasn't just about an armored car robbery and murder, even though there is a lot that is interesting about that and disturbing, right? But ultimately, it's about, you know, who this man was to all these different people. So his family was ultimately, you know, my kind of way in to the story um you know his he he had 
in real life that there were more there was actually three siblings in the film we kept it at three um which is actually similar to i have two siblings myself um two boys and a girl so it's actually you know it, you know it's, it's similar <laughs> sibling yeah. dynamics you know um and yeah, I mean, you know, they, the three kids had a, they were from a Mormon upbringing originally, um, you know, which is known to be quite strict. And there was kind of a dichotomy there because Jason's father was a criminal and a con man himself who had ties to the underground, the underworld. <laughs> um, Jason's father was known for, you know, taking the kids on trips to Vegas and Mexico. Tawana would leave them in a car while he went and picked up, you know, stacks of cash and would then take the kids to, like, really fancy hotels and kind of spoil them and show them this is how life is. And, you know, he was in and out of their lives. And, you know, he, there was accounts that he would apparently, like, have the kids answer the phone for him uh, when they were, you know, when the police called, like it was really, you know, he, he had played a lot of mind games and it was a brutal divorce between the dad and the mom, um, you know, and he would put the kids against the mom. So there's a lot of accounts of that, that, you know, were out there publicly that I read and got information on. Um, and, you know, Jason was coached by his father. He was taught how to be a criminal and a con man by him and how to do, and all the kids were, were taught this uh, by the dad. But Jason really had this connection to his father. I think the two of them, it seems, were, and again, this is my creative interpretation, because what I should stress, um, you know, is that my film is a work of true crime fiction. So it is based, you know, on a true story. And a lot of stuff in the film is actually quite factual. But I took a lot of creative liberties to make the story dramatic, engaging, compelling, what happened. So... <laughs> You know, listeners out there take what I say with a grain of salt. Um, but, you know, again, what I researched was that Jason was, was very much coached and very much like his dad in a lot of ways. And, you know, when Jason turned 18, he went on a Mormon missionary trip to France. Uh, you know, he seemed quite wide-eyed and optimistic about the world. And, you know, when he graduated college, he went to, uh, he was getting his MBA from the Monterey Institute. Um, you know, he spoke fluent French and Spanish, and he was married and in a Mormon ceremony. You know, he had, you know, he was not the guy who you <laughs> see in the movie necessarily at all. Um, but around age 25, 1994, his father went missing, um, disappeared, and no one really ever underst understood or knew why he just vanished. Um, you know, there could be information that Jason and his brother knew, but it was really a, a big question mark. The father's never been found. Or seen, he, he vanished, you know, back 10 years before Jason eventually vanished and the same thing. So, you know, it's pretty fascinating, um, you know, and, and allegedly what happened around this time when Jason was 25 and his father disappeared was he just kind of went off the deep end. You know, he got divorced, started becoming obsessed with wealth and image, materialistic things. Cars, Vegas, gambling, drinking, drugs, all that, and you know, then got into a life of being a con artist, and he was quite a good con artist. Um, you know, he was maybe not the most sophisticated one out there because now cons have gone really sophisticated. But he was a good con man. He could put on good performances, and that was something that you know, in the film as we made it, 
was, you know, really showing how what Jason does is he's a bit like he's a bit like an actor. You know, he can put on a good show and he can and part of what made him, I think, such a convincing person, you know, and so effective to the people who knew him and who loved him was I think a part of Jason did believe his own lies. You know, there's a line in the movie where Jackie Weaver's character says in one of my favorite scenes in the film, she says, you know, I think the only difference between you and your father is that you are just delusional enough to buy your own bullshit. Right. Um, are we allowed to curse on this? I can't yeah, reply. it's fine. Okay, yeah. cool. It's I mild, figure, but it's fine. I, I, I figure it's a pretty already fine. <laughs> um, but, you know, so you know, you're just delusional enough. And I think that's part of what makes Jason so interesting is that he believes this to be true. You know, so when someone falls in love with a con, a con man, is it real? You know, and that's the question I think you ask him, you know, when we look at Adina Menzel's characters, character arc, you know, mm-hmm. you know, because one thing that was very important to me was not, and Tom really helped Tom Pelfrey really helped me with this when signed on to play Jason was really making sure we weren't telling a story where Jason's super smart and everyone else around him is really stupid, you know, and Jason may think that, but th- that's not the movie. We, that's not the story we were trying to tell. We were trying to tell a story. This is someone who, and the first question Tom asked him when he signed on to play Jason Derrick Brown was, do you see Jason as a sociopath or a wounded, immature man-child? And my answer to you today is, I think, both. But in Jason's mind, he was not a sociopath. In Jason's mind, I think this was a wounded, immature man-child who, you know, had a very calculated way of thinking about things, and he took that to such a far extreme <laughs> Right, that escalated in this in this heinous, horrendous crime. And I think that's right, because I was going to ask you that later on, <laughs> 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 what Jason thought of himself. But I'll, I'll get to it. But I worded it differently, so I'll I'll still ask. Great. Um, so, so all of this just kind of goes to the motive in the case, and I think you basically covered that. Is that he was reaching kind of a breaking point in his life. Um. Uh, when it comes to like you talked about the dramatization, you know, you add some stuff into a film. Um, when it comes to the timeline of the crime and and some of the basic facts of it, your film seems to stick pretty close to actual events. Um, I don't want to give too much away, but there are some details um, that stood out to me, particularly because of the crime. And I'm into the crime, the robbery sequence. Um, you changed it a little bit. At least I think you did. Um, it seemed like you kind of held back a little bit and, um, the, because the focus of the film wasn't sharply trained on, um, the victim and all this, his name is Robert Keyes Palomares, right? Yes. Um, his scene, I, I kind of think you sort of reined it in and tell me about that and what you were thinking when you did that, because it wasn't as graphic as I thought it was going to be. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I have a theory on violence, nudity, sexuality, uh, in film. And I think that, you know, look, and I'm not like, I love all kinds of films. Um, you know, I'm not the biggest horror movie fan, but I do like some horror, um, you know, and I think, you know, violence in the movies can be used in a very, sometimes it can be very gratuitous. Um, my intention with the scene um was to show it and i actually i would argue um and i've heard this from people who have watched it 
that the scene that you're talking about, the robbery murder scene, is, is quite brutal. Um, but it's more from an emotional and psychic, psychological standpoint than it is a, um, in terms of showing graphic violence specifically. Um, because this was a brutal murder where a man was shot in the head multiple times, right? And for me, you know, I felt personally in my choices of shots and my selection there that to show more of the buildup to it and allow you to be in the headspace of this character when he does the awful thing was more disturbing than to show blood and brain matter like a horror movie, which this was never trying to be. So, you know, it's a design choice. It's a creative choice, I suppose. Um, but I wasn't interested in, in doing over-the-top graphic violence. That wasn't my intention. Uh, and it is pretty, I would say that the scene is still, it's quite violent, you know. It is. Um, it's just not, you know, I, I didn't want to show the, yeah, the gory details necessarily. Um, but there's blood and you do see some of that. So I wanted it to be, you know, my goal was authenticity. Not necessarily accuracy, but authenticity. I want them to feel real and believable and credible and all those things, but not, you know, overly like let's, you know, yeah, it's not it's not that kind of movie. Um and people have said to me they're surprised by how, you know, in spite of the title, the film's not as violent as they're expecting it to be. Right. But it's a, I, it's a dark film. It's It's dark and I think yeah. it's psychological violence. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> in a way, it's a oh, psychological yeah. it's very I was I was more disturbed by the scene where um he's partying with his sister in the aftermath. Yeah. Um and he has a flashback or an image of his victim standing there watching him with the with the bullet holes in his head. Right. That was really disturbing. Right. More so than the murder scene. Well, and I think that's something, you know, some of the films I love, uh, highly recommend this film to you and your listeners. There's a film I just saw in a theater here in LA called Peeping Tom, which was made in 1960. It's kind of considered the first horror film. Um, You know, it's it's pretty much a slasher in terms of its story. It's about a guy with a camera who stalks and kills women, right? And it was the first of its kind. And, you know, when it came, it's considered a classic now. It, like, it reviled people when it came out. It lit the world on fire. <laughs> it, it ruined the director's career. You know, it was a great director, Michael Powell. Um, but, you know, I was watching this film the other day for the first time. I'd been talk, told about it for years. Scorsese calls it, like, one of his favorite movies. Um, and I, it took me so long to get to it. But I was amazed by how this movie was so effective, so disturbing, more than any you know, torture porn movie I've seen in a, you know, like in recent years, this movie was so unflinching and yet there's no gore and no blood even in the movie. Yeah. You know, it messes but, with your mind, but you feel it all. And that's yeah. really more of the kind of filmmaking I'm personally interested in. No disrespect to the other kinds of films. I, I, I'm friends with a lot of horror filmmakers and yeah, it's a craft and it's a real art, what they do. Um, but you know, for me, I, I do something, you know, what I do typically is a little different. I, I, I think that, you know, graphic violence has its place, but I didn't feel, I didn't feel it added in the scene. I think like what you're saying, yeah, the psychology of it is what's way more disturbing. I, I'm the same way. I am not a horror movie fan. And that's why I, I asked you when we first talked, how violent is it? Because this is the thing. 
um, my my mom's side of the family were Vietnamese, and my uncles were huge like kung fu karate fans, and so they would watch these movies, and I would see all this really graphic violence, and there was a scene that I watched one time where these two um, fighters were going at it. And this one guy like jumped and he got hung up in the ceiling or in a chandelier and his opponent did this flying kick and then kicked his head off of his yeah. body. And then all this blood started just gushing out of, out of his neck and onto the floor. <laughs> Ever since then, I've just been really, I can't watch that kind of, it's very difficult for me. It's stressful. So yeah, I would, I appreciated how you kind of, held back on that. It, I thought it was very well done and it was different and it wasn't what I expected, but it, it went really well for me. I liked it a lot. It's great. Um, so the movie painted a very different image of Jason and from what I saw him as when I did my episode, right. um, you, he, he comes across to me when I first talked about him as a really well put together party guy, um, just money and women and drugs and just fun, just all the time, 24 seven fun. But your film portrays a very different side of him. Somebody who lacked a lot in his childhood. Um, almost somebody who was abused. I, I feel like what his dad did to him was abusive, but did, yeah, he, Jason didn't realize it was abusive when it was happening. Right. Um, he eventually turned into somebody who found himself, you know, backed into this corner when his life started falling apart and you almost start to feel sorry for him. Do you feel sorry for Jason Derrick Brown? It's a great question. Um, you know, for me, every movie, in addition to having a theme and the theme of this film is family. I think every movie I don't necessarily believe in message movies, but I do believe that movies can pose questions. You know, the best films that I love, that I grew up loving, pose questions. You know, um, I watch The Godfather twice, three times a year, at least. And every time, even though I, and Godfather 2, right? And every time I know that Michael Corleone is going to kill all these people, including his own brother, by the end of the two movies. And somehow I, I feel for him. I feel sorry for him that he lost his humanity. I feel that I feel compassion for him, even though he's awful. Yeah. And the same thing when I saw Dog Day Afternoon, which was the film that made me want to be a filmmaker. You know, uh, like when Al Pacino gets arrested after robbing a bank and putting a gun in people's faces, right? <laughs> even though you like him because he's kind of funny and this and that, he he did he threatened people's lives for twenty four hours. When he's at the plane, and it's all over. I I I cry, right? And so. You know, and then, like, uh, you think about the TV shows that me and my generation uh, grew up loving, like Breaking Bad and The Sopranos, you know? So I think that's part of the, you know, both the danger and the appeal of this film is that you, you know, even though he's not such, he's, you know, he's a pretty bad guy, you may find yourself rooting for him, or you may not. You know, I've had people, I haven't had too many people watch the film, but I've screened it, you know, twice now in front of a big screen with packed crowds and i've had test screenings before and i've had people love jason and feel compassion for him i've had people hate him and think he was you know awful from the beginning i've had both you know and and honestly both have been able to enjoy the film um because i made it to start a conversation and i made it to really pose this central question 
which is can you take someone who is quote unquote rotten to the core, right? Um, and has bad intentions and isn't sincere, right? Cause Jason Derrick Brown isn't a con artist really can't be. Um, and can you move an audience to a place of compassion and understanding? That was the central question that drove me to make. The movie. Um, and this guy, it makes it very hard <laughs> because of the way he acts and behaves. And even when he's, you know, you're just like, you know, a lot of people have read the script and said, oh my God, I knew someone in college who reminds me of Jason. Like, a, you know, the loud frat boy, party boy who you kind of pointed out earlier in your episode. You know, he has that kind of persona, right, of the loud, obnoxious guy. You know, in many ways, Jason was kind of an, he was kind of a bit of an influencer before it existed in the way he was filming himself and photographing himself and putting his own image out there. So it is challenging. But at the end of the day, I do, because like I said, I view this as a movie about family and the loss of humanity within a person. Because even though Jason was evil and what he did was so heinous and awful, there was still somebody in there who had the potential to be not this person. Right? Right. And so I think that that's what's both challenging and interesting about this character and having conversations about him and seeing how, you know, this movie's not out yet, how are people going to react to seeing him on screen in this way? Because we're really putting you in there. And that was my whole goal making the movie, was to stick the audience with this guy. And, you know, <laughs> you're stuck watching it. And a lot of people for the first half do like Jason and the second half, then that's when they start to go, oh, God, you know. And I think that's part of what this movie's kind of addressing, you know, discussing and, you know, trying to get to the bottom of. So I don't know if that directly answers your question, but that's how I feel. To an extent. On the flip side of that, you depicted Jason as a proficient liar, a manipulator. A man who is able to shed real tears if it suits his purposes, but also a man who is steadfastly loyal to his family, particularly his siblings, a man who is willing to spend $200 on a gift card to Toys R Us to a child he startled at a gun range yet still be capable of murdering a man for a bag of money. How would you characterize a person like Jason Derrick Brown? Do you label him psychotic? sociopathic borderline or misunderstood <laughs> i mean a bit of all of the above right right um, right certainly you know I, I don't think it's pretty hard to argue that he's not sociopathic you know um what he did and the way he did it and by the way the actions before the murder right like just going into you know lying to so many people and misleading them and taking their money and you know, all of that, right? It doesn't carry anywhere near the same weight, but it is, it is certainly there's a similar behavior of like a lack of regard for other people, you know, and other people's feelings. Um, and, you know, so I think it's all of the above. He was a master manipulator. He was a con man. He was a cheat. He was, you know, a psychopath. He was a sociopath for sure. Um, psychopath, I think might be a different definition, although I'm not, I'm not a psychologist, so I can't make that up. There's a distinction. I get them mixed up. <laughs> yeah, I think I yeah you know, I don't know if he qualifies that, but he's I I would say yeah for sure. I think he has sociopathic tendencies at the very least. Um, but you know, sociopaths are humans as well, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. so what uh, you know that's I think what's made them so fascinating in our culture. You know, and I think you know it's interesting because when I started writing this group, like con artists in particular started to really kind of have another day in the sun. Like I remember. Um, 
think when I first began writing like the Firefest documentary came out, then it was the Elizabeth Holmes story was everywhere. You know, it was like, you know, it is a very prevalent theme. And, you know, the movie also is an examination of the dark side of the American dream and that, you know, you have this ideal of like, make as much money as you can, get rich quick, do what you can do, right? And, you know, in Jason's mind, he wanted to, you know, have all the toys and have a high life without working for it, right? Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, part of why this character is so interesting is because we could do a two-hour podcast and talk about all these different <laughs> traits of him. I mean, you can't figure this guy out. You know, I spent years working on the screenplay and finishing the film and going through with edits and all that. And like, I think, I think I have a good idea about who he is, but the truth is I don't. He really was a fascinating, layered, complex person, you know, who meant a lot of things to a lot of people, but I'm drawn to that. You know, my other favorite movie is Lawrence of Arabia and the main character of that movie. I've seen that movie at least 50 times. I can never figure Lawrence out. I'm like, who is, what is, what does he want? Why is he in the desert? You know, I like, why does he keep going back? Um, and I think that's the movies I tend to love are like when their characters are, the plots are, could be simple, but the characters are complex. Do you think Jason was just that good and that masterful, or do you think he just got lucky? It's <laughs> another good question. I, <laughs> I think a little bit of both. Well, he definitely was not the smartest criminal in the world. I think anyone can say that safely. You know, he made some stupid mistakes. He did plan the robbery quite well, um, with the exception of the spoiler alert, you know, one mistake. But um, uh, overall, you know, no, I think he was a fairly smart criminal, but not not that amazing criminal. I do think there was an element, there was a huge element of luck. Um, you know, he is savvy. He definitely was able to, you know, pull some tricks. But it was 2004 when he committed this crime. There was not as much, there was not quite as much surveillance as there is now um, at all. It was post 9-11, but it was still, you know, there weren't as many cameras around. There weren't as much, you know, there was no social media. I mean, I think the art of disappearance has definitely changed a lot in the last you know, 18 years since this crime happened. You know, it's not as easy to disappear now as it was back then. Um, so, you know, I do think timing. I also think the fact that he's a white guy uh, certainly says something, right? Uh, it's easier for him to blend in and escape. So, you know, uh, I think, yeah, I think it's a combination of the two, but I think more luck probably is my guess. One of the things that I learned um, in going back through this case in the last few days since we've talked and I've been trying to catch up with it is that the FBI and the local law enforcement disagreed on whether or not to identify Jason as the person that, um, that was Keith Palomares' killer. Um, that was a, a issue with going to the media and whether or not to put his face out there or do you think that was a huge mistake? Um, do you think that that's the reason why we're sitting here today wondering where in the world is Jason Derrick Brown? Highly possible. You know, I remember that because I, I actually had written that into the script. And I really wanted to make that detail work story-wise. There were a lot of incredible stories, uh, you know, that I just could not use because uh, that's part of the tough part of making movies is you have to, they call it kill your darlings. Um, 
you know, there's always stuff, you know, there was so much interesting research I had accumulated and, you know, I'm writing a new crime, true crime film right now. Uh, that's my follow-up film. And it's very similar. It's just like, there's a lot of so many fascinating tidbits and anecdotes that I got from people, but you know, it's kind of my, I had a great teacher at American film Institute that said to me, uh, real life is a poor excuse for bad drama. <laughs> so, you know, part of your job is to dramatize the story and make it engaging, make it fascinating. One. So, um, in terms of your question, you know, I think, yeah, that was definitely a mistake. I think everybody who was involved admitted that, you know, um, but they had their reasons, you know, this, the public had the right to know what, you know, people in Phoenix were shaken up by what had happened. So, you know, I, I think it was just, a, I can't, I can't speak to it cause I'm not a cop and I don't know the, how they, right. how they work, but, um, you know, I, he was tipped off by that for sure. Um, which we do show that in the film that he sees the news report. Um, because he thought he got away with it scot free. He did. You know, he was anxious uh, and definitely desperate about, you know, he, I think he was anxious and looking over his shoulder. But yeah, I think at first he did think he was pretty in the clear. He did not know what they knew that they, you know, had his, had his image and likeness attached to this thing. So. Yeah, I think it was a mistake, um, but, you know, I, I have very little experience uh, hunting these kinds of criminals, so I can't, Yeah, you know, I try not to pass, I really try not to pass judgment on any character I portray in a movie. Um, I think that everybody in the web of Jason Derrick Brown, his family, uh, the law enforcement, uh, you know, the victim, the victim's family, the, his marks, his cons, I think everybody who you know, and I always actually talked about this as a bit of a monster movie, and that a monster movie is often when you're scared for everybody the monster comes in contact with, you know, and, you know, everyone who did come in contact with Jason Derrick to some degree suffered, you know, mm-hmm. um, and this part of what the movie's about. I love the movie. Um, I thought the cast was brilliant. Tom Pelfrey, I, I felt like he really captured all of the dimensions of jason that i really didn't even think about as being a part of who he is or was as a person if if jason himself saw this movie even (laughs) if um i know you just are loving my questions right (laughs) i do i do i do um i i honestly think he would might even have a deeper understanding of himself um, wow, that might be the best compliment I've ever got. <laughs> I did. Well, see, that's the thing is, um, once I heard from you and we said, okay, we're going to do this on Wednesday, I've been obsessing over the case for the last 48 hours. Wow. I think that if he saw it, he'd be like, wow, you know, dang, I that guy should seek some professional help. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what yeah. do you think? What do you think Jason would think of this movie if he saw it? Um, I'm sure he'd have notes. Uh, <laughs> is my guess. I'm sure he would have some things. Uh, you know, uh, he'd have input on how he was portrayed. You know, he might say like, "I did more drugs than that," or "I did less drugs than that." <laughs> you know, I don't talk like that. I don't know, but um, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's tough to say. Um, I'd like to think that he saw it as honest uh you know fair i think we did it you know at least my intention was to do a fairly honest portrayal of his spirit you know like i said i was never about accuracy was never my mission um authenticity was my mission 
kind of seem they seem like similar things, but they're not really. You know, authenticity means I want it to feel real and feel honest, but you know, I'm not trying to necessarily hit every single thing exactly as it wants. And I'm sure, you know, when you when you turn a real life person into a movie character, there is there are liberties you take. Um, you know, and again, without because the keep in mind the only records I have of Jason Derek Brown are photographs, some videos, not many, but some videos of him partying on a boat, which we recreate in the film and water skiing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then interviews with some people who knew him. Some I did personally, some I read from multiple sources. So that's not a ton, right? I, you know, that requires me as a filmmaker to do a lot of imagination. Um, but, you know, I, I like to think of it as an honest portrayal. And I think that, uh, you know, I would, I would be very curious to hear his thoughts if he ever saw it, if he's still out there. I scrolled through the film's IMDb. I totally, like, trolled you all over the Internet. Um, <laughs> so this has already won a couple of awards, right? Uh, yes. About those? Yes. Uh, we, we, were, um, well, we had our world premiere in Italy uh, at the Terramina Film Fest uh, in Sicily, which was quite special. Um, we premiered the film in an amphitheater that was built in 300 BC. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola was there with The Godfather uh, for the 50th anniversary. I had the chance to meet him, which was pretty incredible. Um, last week, we showed at the Boston Film Festival, uh, where the movie won two awards: uh, Best Actor for for Lee Tom Belfry and Best Music for My Brother uh, Scott Gentile, who did the music for the film. Um, and it was, this was his first film score as well. He's a world-renowned conductor and pianist um and this was his first movie he did this in COVID as well because all his uh, concerts got canceled so he had free time to help me and my team put this movie together um and he did a fantastic job and i was glad i was very glad that he got rewarded for that my editor matt allen also worked super closely with him on the score um so it was a really yeah that was a great thing and now the movie's coming out soon so it's exciting to see we have a couple more festivals before the release um but we're very excited Perfect. That's awesome. Amazing. And congratulations. I clicked around Thank on your you. website. You're welcome. And I watched some of your videos and I watched a trailer for Frontman. And uh, you got you got awards for that. Can you tell us a little bit about that? It's a short film, right? It was your yeah, thesis? That was my yeah, my uh I had two thesis films, Frontman and Lawman, no relation. Um, but they were both about two men. Um and Frontman was, yeah, about a rock star who lost his hearing. I did do that before Star is Born, just one, and Sound of Metal, so I just want to say, uh, <laughs> on the record there. Uh-huh. And uh, Frontman was the movie I graduated with um, that won the student Emmy for Best Directing, mm-hmm. opened a lot of doors for me, um, you know, it was a great experience making that film, and then after that I did a short film called Lawman, which was a western about uh, the first African-American deputy in U.S. history, Bass Reeves, um, and that film I actually did with my cinematographer, Khalil Robinson, uh, editor Chris Young, and editor Matt Allen, who came in after. Uh, those three were all AFI film school people with me. And I was hired to do Lawman as a director for hire um, because someone the year below me had dropped out. So they hired me to kind of come in and like lead this team to complete a movie. And that's how Lawman was born. And that's how the team for American Murder was born as well. So. Um, you know, those two shorts were kind of what helped helped put me on the map and get me out there into the world. But it was ultimately writing screenplay for American Murder that got me the directing job. 
Amazing. Well, I, I've fought the two. I watched the trailer for Frontman. I love like your camera angles and the way you pan through stuff. It was really the. It was great. I loved all. I love the movie so much. It was oh, so, you so well much. done. And I, I actually watched it twice. I watched it during the day yesterday, and then I watched it at night when before I was going to bed. And I finished it up this morning for the second time. <laughs> I wow. just really wanted to make sure I. And I'm going to see it again. I I hope before we go, before we finish up, why yes. don't you tell the listeners when we can see American Murder and where we can see American Murder. Yes. Um, so American Murder will be out in theaters October 21st, and it'll be on digital and demand on October 28th. Um, if you want to keep up to date, you can follow me on Instagram at Matthew L. Gentile, or you can also follow me on my website, MatthewGentileDirector.com. Uh, which I update fairly often. Okay. I was hoping you were on social media because I looked around. I, I will go to Instagram and I'll definitely follow you so I can see everything. I want to thank you so much for my dog's barking. Thank you for coming on the show. I really enjoyed getting to know you and thank you so much for reaching out to me. I would have never even known this was happening because Jason Derek Brown, I feel like kind of felt like a sort of a story that's had its time and it sort of passed. But actually, oh, we forgot to talk about, he's not on the FBI's list anymore. Nope, he was removed as of September 7th, which was pretty surprising to me. I was um, surprised, too. Yeah, I have no idea why. Um, Maybe they have some information about him not being alive anymore. Yeah, if they do, they haven't told me. <laughs> but I, I wish. The I FBI wish. cannot, invent, uh, by the way, earlier question. Uh, was does the FBI did the FBI cooperate? The FBI actually can't cooperate with films and filmmakers on ongoing investigations or cases that aren't closed. Right. So um, even if I had wanted to work with them, I, I would have been an opportunity. Um, but yeah, I, so there are reasons. Who knows? Um, like it has been almost twenty years since he's been gone. So there's all kinds of theories for why or where he could be. Do you think he's with his dad? Did you think they ever hooked up? I know that's a big theory. I never personally thought that, but anything's possible with these guys. All right. Um, well, thank you again. Thank so you so much, Roseanne. Thank you for having me on and giving so... me this podium to talk about the film. These were really great questions. Uh, seriously, I do mean that. They were just smart thought out. So. I appreciate you willing your willingness to focus on the crime for me because that's what all I'm about. <laughs> well, it's a crime podcast, you know, but I think our interests met in the middle, so it's great. Um, okay, and perfect. Yeah, thank you so much. Sure. All right, I'm gonna sign out now, and um, I would look forward to seeing the movie in theaters. I can't wait. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Take care. Okay, now I'm gonna provide you a recap of the crime. Jason Derrick Brown was born July 1st, 1969 in Los Angeles, California, but would later go on to live in various places around Orange County, including Laguna Beach, Dana Point, and Newport Beach. He graduated from Laguna Beach High School in 1987. As a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Jason spent two years from 1988 through 1990 serving his mission in Paris, France. Jason speaks fluent French, and he would go on to earn a master's degree in international business. For a time, Jason was married, but that marriage never produced any children, and he and his wife 
divorced. And that would end up being somewhat of a turning point where instead of living any kind of devout Mormon lifestyle, Jason did a complete 180, as if a switch were flipped. Jason indulged in a life of excess that included lots of partying, drinking, and drugs. And Jason also had a taste for very expensive and luxurious things. He had two cars, a BMW and a Cadillac Escalade, as well as a boat, motorbikes, you know, just toys. The thing was, Jason was not making anywhere near the kinds of money he would have needed to support a lifestyle such as this. And you know what? Even if he did have the money, I still think he would go about getting the things the way that he did, which was through fraud. He did run a couple of businesses out of his home in Salt Lake City, Utah. One was called Toys Unlimited and the other was called On the Doorstep Advertising. So Jason was able to pretend he was making money hand over fist as a successful businessman and entrepreneur, but the truth was he was living on borrowed money, sort of. He was tens of thousands of dollars in debt. He had defaulted on loans, and by the time 2004 rolled around, Jason was drowning. He was up to his eyeballs in overdue bills. Creditors were after him. He had borrowed all he could from his family. And while Jason was keeping up this image of a wealthy guy with all of the luxury things that he could possibly dream of having and fooling most of his friends and family who thought he was filthy rich through a series of scams, check frauds, and loan schemes, it was all starting to catch up with him though. And as 2004 wore on, Jason was becoming more and more desperate to find a quick fix to solve all of his money problems. Jason decided that the way he wanted to dig himself out of the hole he was in was that he needed to pull off a heist. Jason may or may not have talked to some of his closest friends about this or possibly even wanted to recruit someone to help him, but ultimately, as far as anyone knows, Jason would end up acting alone. In early November of 2004, Jason purchased a 45 caliber pistol from a place called Totally Awesome Guns and Range in Salt Lake City, Utah. In order to get the gun, he went through a background check and had his picture taken. The most well-known photo of Jason, one of the last clear ones of him to ever be taken, is the one where he's smiling, wearing a red hoodie against a blue background. That was his gunshot photo. Jason took shooting lessons with instructor Clark Afazian, who described him as an obnoxious guy, which, if I'm being honest, you can kind of tell just by looking at his pictures that this is a very astute description of Jason. I don't even have to know him, meet him, see him, or talk to him to be able to tell he's probably super obnoxious. He was also a klutz when it came to handling a gun, and he really scored a 10 out of 10 when it came to self-awareness when he signed himself up for shooting instructions because boy, that guy needed them. In fact, 
Jason was such a butterfingers with the gun that he accidentally shot somebody's truck and scared the crap out of the truck owner's kid. Jason would end up sending the man money for the damage to his truck, along with a $200 gift card to the man's son for scaring him. From there, Jason eventually relocated to the Awutaki area, which is located in Phoenix, Arizona. He rented a motel near an AMC movie theater, which is the place he was planning on robbing. Jason's bright idea was to rob the place on the Monday morning following the Thanksgiving holiday. He figured that it would be a long holiday weekend and he would likely be able to come up with as much as $300,000 from the box office earnings. The movies that were opening in the week leading up to the robbery included National Treasure, Christmas with the Cranks, Alexander, The Polar Express, and SpongeBob SquarePants. Even though it opened earlier in the month, The Incredibles was still dominating at the box office and would end up being the fifth highest grossing movie of 2004. But the take was going to be much more disappointing than Jason Derrick Brown had anticipated. So for the next couple weeks in November, Jason surveilled the AMC theater in order to get an idea of what times the armored car showed up and on which days. People saw him sitting in his BMW doing nothing but looking around. At times, Jason would move his car to various places around the parking lot, and eventually he was able to ascertain what times the armored car arrived and how long it would take for the man to walk in, pick up the deposit, and come back out to his truck. At approximately 10 in the morning on Monday, November 29, 2004, 24-year-old armored car guard Robert Keith Palomares picked up the weekend deposit from the movie theater. As he walked through the breezeway towards his armored truck, a man wearing a dark hoodie armed with a 45 caliber semi-automatic pistol opened fire without any warning, without any demand for the bag of money that Robert was carrying. The gunman said not a single word. Five out of the six shots that the gunman fired, struck Robert, all of them hitting above the neck. This was an execution-style ambush, one which Robert had no chance of reaching for his own weapon to defend his life. The gunman grabbed the money from Robert, who still had a firm grip on the bag, and he ducked into a nearby alleyway where he had stowed away a bicycle and from there, he fled from the area. This was in broad daylight with numerous witnesses who were able to provide a general description of the gunman and the direction in which he fled. The gunman then rode his bike to a location where he had his vehicle parked, which was a BMW. He ditched the bike and then fled in his car. As the area was flooded with both local law enforcement and the FBI, this extensive search led to the recovery of the bicycle. The forensic examination were able to lift fingerprints from the bike, which were identified as belonging to Jason 
and he was quickly considered to be a suspect in the murder robbery. At some point, Jason would get back to his motel to count the money. Much to his dismay, the bag only contained $56,000. He checked out of the motel that day and drove from Phoenix to Henderson, Nevada, where he had his Cadillac Escalade parked in a storage unit. He left his BMW there and took the Escalade to California, where it is believed he stayed with his sister Jamie for about six days. They spent those days hanging out and partying as Jason was under the impression that he had gotten away with the robbery and murder scot-free. He had no idea that law enforcement had already identified him. The city of Phoenix and the surrounding communities were shaken by the brazen mid-morning ambush killing of Robert Palomares, and the local law enforcement were anxious to calm people's nerves since the killer was still at large. In order to do so, and to help aid in Jason's apprehension, they wanted to take Jason's name, picture, and information to the media and let it be known that they had a suspect. This is who it is. Be on the lookout. Be vigilant. Be aware, but also be safe. He's armed and dangerous. The FBI, however, was fearful that Jason might be triggered to flee should his name and face be plastered all over the news. They wanted to hold off for another 48 hours before announcing the identification of their prime suspect. The Phoenix police, however, didn't wait and released Jason's picture and information shortly after both the Maricopa County and federal arrest warrants were issued for him. Jason was tipped off by a member of his family and immediately fled from his sister's home. The FBI were able to track Jason to Orange County based on his credit card purchases. They tracked him to San Diego and then all the way the other direction towards Portland, Oregon. After that, Jason Derrick Brown vanished into thin air and to this day has never been seen or heard from again. Jason's Cadillac Escalade was discovered parked in the long-term parking lot of the Portland airport on January 16, 2005. While Jason was in Portland, he sent via UPS a couple of packages to his brother, including a set of golf clubs, cold weather clothing, a laptop, a cell phone, and a few other miscellaneous items. During the time Jason was staying with his sister, he contacted his brother, David Brown, and asked him to pick up his BMW in Henderson. He wanted him to take it to California and have it detailed inside and out, which David did. This act would later lead him to be charged with obstruction of justice, tampering with evidence, and lying to a federal agent in April of 2005, to which he ended up pleading guilty in 2007 and received three years of probation. When the FBI asked David if he knew of any storage units that Jason had in Las Vegas, David said that he did not. Jason's sister, Jamie, who has done interviews about her brother and has written a book, said that technically David wasn't lying to federal agents when he said that he didn't know of any storage units in Las Vegas because technically the storage unit was in Henderson, which is Vegas adjacent. Jamie explained that they learned to never volunteer information from their father, 
David Brown Sr., a shady guy in his own right, and likely where Jason learned some of his tendencies and behaviors from. In an interesting twist, the elder David Brown pulled off his own vanishing act 10 years before Jason did back in 1994. While the nature of his crimes is somewhat murky, there came a day when he told his kids that he was taking off and if they didn't hear from him in two days to just get rid of his stuff. They didn't hear from him, so Jason and David did what they were told, got rid of their dad's worldly belongings. David Brown Sr., just like Jason, was never seen or heard from again. Most believe he met with foul play shortly after he told his kids that he was leaving. The reasons why he left is also a mystery. In the years following Jason's disappearance, the FBI was flooded with hundreds of leads and tips, including various sightings of Jason from all over Arizona, in Salt Lake City, and some tips even came in from Canada. But all of those leads only led to dead ends. On December 8, 2007, Jason was added to the FBI's 10 most wanted list, making him fugitive number 489, along with a reward of $200,000 for information leading to his apprehension. Jason remained on the top 10 list until September of 2022, when he was replaced by Michael James Pratt. While Pratt is from New Zealand, he is wanted out of San Diego, California, for various crimes including conspiracy to commit sex trafficking, child sex trafficking, fraud, coercion, production of explicit materials involving children, and a variety of things related to that mess. Jason is still wanted. He's just not in the top 10 anymore. And where Jason Derrick Brown is today remains a mystery. Many believe that he's deceased, but if he's alive somewhere, whether he's relaxing on a tropical island or if he's living the Mormon life in plain sight somewhere in Utah or if he's hiding in a cave someplace in the world, he would be 53 years old today, about 5 foot 11 or 178 centimeters tall. If he's kept in okay shape, he might be around 180 pounds or 82 kilograms. There is an age-progressed photo online of what he might be looking like today. The FBI has received more tips on Jason than any other fugitive on their list, yet still remains missing nearly 18 years later. So dreamers, let me know if any of you have the chance to go see American Murderer or stream it. I'm going this Thursday night in Vegas, so I'll be able to post about that later on in the week. The movie will be available on all your favorite streaming platforms this Friday, October 28th. I want to thank Matthew again for taking the time to talk to us about this film. He's been picking up more awards for this movie, which doesn't surprise me at all, so congratulations to him and everybody involved in helping him see his movie come to fruition. And yes, dreamers, I got the lowdown on what Matthew's next project is going to be. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but I'll tell you that I am going to cover the case in the very near future. All right, 
that's it for this bonus episode with our interview with director Matthew Gentile. I'm going to try to get another episode out for you sometime this week. This Patreon two-parter for the month of October kind of kicked my butt, and I'm thinking I'm going to take a week off at the end of October going into November, but I'll keep you posted. Thanks again for listening. Thank you to Matthew. Congratulations on the movie. And as always, dreamers, until next time, sweet dreams.